Fano, welcome back to When Lambs Are Silent, the podcast. Uh, it's great to be back with you all today. And guess what? We managed to get Summer Hendry back on the show. Hooray us. How you doing, Summer? Hi, I'm back again. After um, great feedback that she made the show, we've managed to talk her back in. So keep bringing that feedback in. Um, and we might keep getting a spectacular guest host. So yeah, these are good things. So today we are talking about gangs in our election series. Um, we, you know, we're we're covering some topics which uh, I guess going to be a big part of this election and gangs and how we should respond to gangs and um, getting tough on crime and all that sort of rhetoric is out there in full force at the moment. And we've got Labour and National and everyone sort of telling us what they're going to do about it. So today we thought we'd talk to someone who knows a thing or two. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to sharing this one with you. Yeah, it was good. I enjoyed listening to Afisa and uh, definitely learned something. So, should we listen together? Let's do it. Good, Afisa. It's, it's awesome to have you here today. How are you doing, my man? Yeah, I'm doing really well. Thanks, bro. And thanks for having me. I know you're a busy person with lots of fame, so always good to come <laughs> on and, and spend some time chilling out. Nice sunny day too, so uh, nice. I'm feeling pretty relaxed today. Oh, awesome, bro. Yeah, it's great to have you too, my man. What, before we get into it, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Who are you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so <laughs> if saw, I'm married, married to Fia, good uh, Ranui girl. So see, I'm a good South Auckland boy, grew up uh, in Otara and then chased my wife That's uh, who lives out west or lived out west and then managed to bring her out south. I've got two girls. Um, my girl, uh, my eldest is eight and we had a baby during lockdown and she's six months. So we're Exciting. really happy. Yeah, lockdown's been cool for us, bro, because it's meant that I've been able to work from home and, and live off Zoom meetings like this one. Yeah, so I grew up in Otara. My dad uh, was a minister for a little while, uh, part of the Emanuelu movement, which is kind of like AOG. Uh, and both my parents came from Samoa and all my schooling and lived experience has been out south in Otara and just a, a little uh, short time out west. Uh, we lived there for about seven years when we got married and then came back out south. So, And, oh, and at the moment, I'm the ward councillor for Manuko. So I represent the people in Papatoe, Otara, Mangele and Otahu. So a really uh, blessed opportunity to have to be able to work amongst the community all the time. Awesome, my bro. It's, it's so great to have you on the show. Um, I've also seen that you, you, you were a researcher for a little bit before you got into politics and you did a bit of study around youth gangs. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so we, we undertook a contract. This is going back maybe just uh, maybe 10, 11 years ago, bro. And it was during the time where there'd been a few uh, gang uh, interactions that resulted in people dying out south. And so the government was really interested in what was going on. How do we understand it better? And so a friend of mine, uh, we had a, a little research company because we were fear bright and cool and set up a research company. But we applied for uh, for a research grant from the Families Commission and were successful. And so what we did was we looked at gang 
gangs, both uh, or youth, more generally youth in South Auckland, particularly Māngere and Ōtara, but we looked at uh, youth that were kind of in gangs and youth that weren't in gangs. And I guess the kind of general findings that we got was a lot of the, the guys who were in gangs were really keen to come out. And so many of them had kind of left Ōtara, tried their best to leave that life. One of the things that got them out of it was getting married, having children, because it was definitely of all of them, whether you were in a gang or not, of all of them, many of them said, oh, look, if, if we had the opportunity again, uh, we probably wouldn't have joined, and this isn't something we want for our sons. So a really interesting take mm-hmm. on gang life and what was happening out south, and as well as that, how, how the media looked in on South Auckland, because often the stories that are told are real negative, and the only time they shine the light on South Auckland is when they want to talk about a murder or youth delinquency and that kind of thing. So there's always a, a negative side to those stories. But I tell you, the information that we garnered was really rich and really special because the young people were really honest with us when we asked them different questions. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sure like some of this will come out as, as we have this corridor today. Um, and I guess it's a good place to start. Um, I mean, we're coming up to elections and we're talking about gangs today and, and it's been a big topic of conversation. There's this big boogeyman, which is the gangs, yeah. which, um, you know, everyone's falling over themselves to provide an answer for. But I mean, you know, I guess for you, who, who are those people that, that are coming into gangs, you know, like, um, to, if we were to destigmatize that for a moment and get to the heart of who, who the people are like, what would you say to that? Yeah, I, I think from a, a maybe a macro level, eh, Aaron, my, my sense uh, and my observations have always been that the, the kids who end up in gangs, the young people who end up in gangs are often the young people whose society is really rejected. Mm-hmm. And if we if we're not careful and we make gangs more attractive than society, then of course people are going to turn to society. So, uh, sorry, turn to the gang life. And so when you've got young people who grow up in poverty, where there's a lot of domestic violence, where there's a lot of mum and dad arguing because there's never enough money in the house, a lot of our young people are going to turn to, where can I find a sense of stability? Where can I find something that just gives me something to eat, it gives me a sense of friendship and belonging. And that's who we find ending up in the gangs. And we know that gangs are really clever because they focus a lot of their recruitment at- attention uh, in our churches, in our youth groups, in our schools. And so when young people are impressionable, you're growing up, you want to feel like you fit in. If there's a group of boys who look cool, who are doing things together, who make them feel like there's a little brotherhood going on, then those are the young people we're going to see turning to the gangs. And I think New Zealand in particular has some real work to do as a society to make society much more open and welcoming so that people who've often felt like they don't belong do belong. And those will go to issues like homelessness, being able to to have something to eat, mum and dad being home, one of them at least being home, just to spend time with the kids. And the harder and rougher and more stressed society becomes, the more attention will turn towards the gangs as a place where you're going to find a sense of security. It sounds like connection is a big part yeah. of of why um, our young people are, are getting connected. I mean, what's going wrong in our society? You said that young people are feeling dis- uh, excluded. Like, yeah. what, what do you see as those main things that are, that are going wrong in our society that is leading to that gap? Mm. Yeah, 
so we've got major challenges in our schools for, for starters. We, you look at Māori and Pacific kids, they often have higher rates of expulsion and stand downs. So if the school is telling you you're not going to be successful, if we're pumping out kids from a schooling system where they're not doing so well and we're just kind of churning them out, then we're we're ill preparing them for life and life can be pretty competitive it's hard to get a job it's hard to have the routines to turn up every day to work at 8 30 to be on time to not be tired and so we've got an issue with our schooling system and how we're preparing our young people for life beyond uh, the realm and the gates of school I think the other thing is we've got really highly stressed families and when you've got parents who are working multiple jobs, who aren't always home all the time to be able to do the homework with the kids and just chill out with the kids, then that's going to put major stresses on the family too. So young men in particular are going to be looking for, well, where do I turn to? And if you're not uh, in a sports team, if you're not playing rugby or football, cricket, whatever it is, touch or tag, then you're, you're going to be looking for where am I going to spend my time after three o'clock? What am I going to be doing? And that's where we see, I, I think, a bit of the gap being created is that after school time where they're out of the schooling system and they've got a whole lot of free time, but they don't know what to do with it. And I think that's where the gap begins. And if we don't catch them, then the gang certainly will. I've also got a... a an issue, or not an issue, a positive issue, I think, with the role of the churches, bro. I think churches can do a really big job in ensuring that there's kind of after-school activity. That's where the youth groups kind of fit in. I remember growing up when I was young, we'd go off to church. You know, our churches were running homework centres. They'd be doing, you know, toast and peanut butter at the end of the day because, you know, we were all hungry. You know, I'm not exactly small, and so you'd want something to eat. And the churches were providing that. And I think Part of the problem with the church today is we're really into proselytizing. Hey, we want everyone to come and join our church, receive Jesus and all that. And I think that's part of it. But the issue is, I think young people just want somewhere to feel like they can be safe. And I think the churches can help fill that gap rather than doing the old Benny Hinn thing and saying, come pray, I'll pray for you, I'll heal you and send me a million bucks while you're at it as well. So I, I'm, you're probably picking up that I'm, I've got an issue, slight issue with the churches because I actually think we can be doing more because if, if we're supposed to be that kind of an institution of healing and restoration to the world, then let's start with our young people. Amen. And what would that look like exactly for you? Like, what would you like to see happen? Yeah, I, I think there's churches with huge resources. So I'd love to be able to see churches open up their buildings uh, after school and, and becoming drop-in centers. You know, get the ping pong table out, the pool table. A lot of churches have big grassed areas so you can play touch and tag. So you can run a whole lot of programs out of there. But when young people feel like they've got someone who's an adult or a significant other person that they can trust, it's there that the conversations get a little bit deeper and a little bit richer. And that's where the young people can actually trust someone else who's who looks like they've got it together, but they'll be able to trust their youth leader and really reach out and say, oh, look, these are some of the challenges we're facing at home. So I think the churches are well resourced to be able to run after school programs. And maybe one day we'll all get over the issue at church where, oh, here come the young people. They're going to smash the windows because the ball's going to go flying. Someone will kick the ball and it'll hit the window. And I think once we get over some of those issues, then we're going to, we'll be okay. And I think the other thing that churches offer is most of 
us come from churches that have really good bands. And I grew up AOG, and man, everyone wanted to be in the band. You know, anyone could sing. We all know how to hold a mic. You practice on the guitar, the drums, the bass, the piano. And I think if we start doing uh, musically-based programs, lots of dancing. Our youth used to have a crump session after school. I'm, I'm not that good, bro. I see your caps on backwards as well. So you, you probably fit that cool group i, I wasn't a show, dancer bro. man yeah <laughs> <laughs> i i just tried to be cool but you know there's lots of really awesome things that we could do and it just helps the young people to feel like yep yeah, cool um after school i'll go there and it reassures the parents that if i'm not going to finish work till five and then mum and dad have to catch the bus home so they're not really in the house till quarter to six six they know that the local church up the road is looking after the kids providing them uh, some some toast and and milo and in a fun safe environment for them to to hang out and i think that's a slowly what we could start to look like yeah, so I'm I'm hearing a lot like a driver here is is the breakdown of our communities, right? Like the the fabric of our communities is is breaking down, and 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 our young people are slipping through those cracks, and the gangs are picking that up. But I guess the other side of that is the pressure that is on our whanau, um to be working late or to um you know to to be so busy just trying to make ends meet. Um, and you mentioned poverty before. I mean, what's going on for our whanau that that pressure exists? It's hard, eh? and and I know it's tough. I, I grew up, and mum was a cleaner at Middlemore Hospital for as long as I can remember, and dad was a taxi driver, so, you know, the typical AOG-type pastor where you worked as well. And so they were hardly home, and they did long hours. And I, this is going back to when I was a youth maybe 30 years ago, bro, and I don't think much has changed. And that's our challenge, is that we've got a lot of parents who are doing all they can to we're getting stories now of, of young people who are leaving school or who are breaking up their school day so that they can work part-time to help mum and dad. COVID-19 has put a real highlight on the job losses that we've had, especially in more vulnerable communities. So the, the poverty, the inability to feed the kids, that causes huge stress. And it's those stress factors that start to play out in different ways. We've seen the high prevalence of uh, particularly, particularly in vulnerable families with domestic violence, with uh, the need to just kind of get free. And I remember during the first lockdown, I was ringing some of the boys just saying, oh, look, we can't, we're not supposed to hang out, but why don't you come for a walk with me or, or run? I, I would watch them run. But be distanced enough but it just got them out of the house because all of a sudden everyone's at home dad's not used to being home with the kids running all over the place and it's just a bit much for them to spend those eight hours in, at home with some of the kids and so all of us have to look for ways to help families to to vent to de-stress and when you've got those kinds of financial pressures on you it's going to be tough and that's coupled with the transience of our community as well. When you've got high levels of overcrowded housing, high levels of homelessness, and we know that that's predominantly Māori and Pacific Island families, then you're going to be moving around a lot. And as someone whose background is in education, I've seen the the impact of the transience on the, the kids' ability to read and to write and to learn numbers. So our literacy and numeracy is highly impacted because we're constantly on the move. 
And if we could just get some stable housing, if that's all we could provide families, any government, whatever shade of government you are, if we could provide that kind of stability, then everyone gets an equal chance. But we don't have equal playing fields because we've got families who are just struggling to survive day to day. So that, that, those are the high stresses in our families. And I think if we can really work on those high stresses and just starting to alleviate those stresses, then we're going to do better for society. It's a, it's a lot, um, a lot harder than just <laughs> going yeah. tough on crime. Right. But, but I guess that's the, that's, that's the rhetoric, right. That's out there at the moment. Yeah. We're, we're, we're coming up to an election. Um, and it seems that every party from every angle is trying to think about not every party, but you know, sort of our major players are saying, well, well how, how do we address crime and how do we address gangs? It's, you know, national's got their response, just harass and, you know, target the gangs. And, um, I think labor are talking about upping the police. And mm. so, I mean, for you, are these approaches effective? Um, and and if not, like, what's what's a better what's a better solution? Yeah, no, ni- neither approach is effective. I think I should say it. I'm I'm a member of the Labour Party as well, but I don't think the Labour Party have done enough here either. You can't just increase the number of cops and hope that we're going to force people to be compliant in the world. That just falls into the whole we're watching you. And National's response is the same old boring response that they come out with every three years, which is we're going to throw the book at you, we'll find you, we will smoke you out and we'll create more and more prisons. Our prisons are filled with human talent that's being wasted because Māori and Pacific men in particular are being locked up. And there's a, there's a, a vast array of reasons for that. I think that the best thing that we could do is provide a sense of stability and hope. So it comes back to our housing, a basic income where people can feel like they're surviving, making people feel like they're part of a community, locking them into that community. Often amongst Samoans and Pacific people, we say it takes a village to raise the child. And if we, if, we, if we approach life with that concept in mind, I think we're going to do better. I think slowly we've allowed ourselves as a society to become a bit more selfish and to feel like it's that problem over there and it's not my problem. And we, we create gated communities where we can lock out the people we don't want and we can just keep the people that we do want. And I think the more we build walls, the more we build gates, the less understanding and compassion is going to exist in our society and that's what I think is missing as a fundamental tenet of any kind of uh, government policy is how do we show compassion you know we've had got been through COVID every day you've got the Prime Minister saying let's be kind well being kind isn't upping the numbers of cops or throwing the book at young people being kind is making sure they've got something to eat three stable meals staple meals a day a school that's going to look after them maybe even some mentors where they can lean on people who've who've kind of walked through life you know I'm I don't know you bro but I'm looking at you thinking well maybe he's been through challenges too maybe life hasn't been a direct path and if you're able to share your experiences and walk alongside young people they'll know that they don't have to have it all together that we don't expect them to want to be a lawyer or a nurse or a business manager by the time they turn 13 years old that what we want them to do is kind of live life a little bit test out what they're interests are and know that they've always got the safety of the church and of family whenever they go home. Yeah, at the other end, you're going to need more cops and you're going to need uh, places to house these people when they have been naughty. But let's get the preventative end moving quicker and faster and more holistically before we start focusing on prisons and police and throwing the book at people. And 
I think we're seeing slight moves in it. If you look at the justice system, restorative justice uh, is something that's typical, much more typical now in the approach for youth, for the youth court. But I don't think we're seeing it society wide. What's this approach do um, to a community and to people? Um, you know, I mean, these gangs, uh, they're made up of people, right? Like you said, um, people that have gone through us, you know, felt like they've been excluded from society. And so they're looking for that connection and belonging. And so what does it do to this group of people? Um, some of them will be Alfano. Um, when they hear this rhetoric um, from politicians and when, when we start to go on this hard line approach um, towards them as a community and they get singled out, what, what, what do you see happen? Yeah, I think all it does is it reaffirms the the fact that they don't feel like they belong anyway. And often, and anyone who studied child psychology will know that a, a, a child in the classroom goes a little bit haywire and off the, the ropes a bit just to get some attention. Hey, a lot of the naughty kids are naughty because they just want some more of your attention. And if you're only getting people's attention when you're naughty, then you just keep up that behavior. If it's attention and love and compassion that people are after, we shouldn't wait till Ephesus been naughty for us to show that attention. We should be encouraging him all along the way and then steering him. When I get it wrong, it's not about, you know, um, being nasty and saying, yeah, there you go, you are the failure that we expected you to be, but you start to nurture people back towards another path. I think when young people feel like society's turned its back on them, they'll just think, well, stuff you then. Hey, if you don't want to include me, then I'll do anything I want to make you f to make you know that you've excluded me. And unfortunately, it turns negative. It becomes antisocial. The behavior becomes negative. And then we're having to deal with young people and trying to chip away of, from years of feeling excluded and like you don't belong. You're going, to, you're going to need youth workers and social workers for the rest of our lives, and you're going to need a whole lot more investment. And rather than maybe spending money on increasing our police numbers, we should be focusing our resource into making sure we've got good community programs and more youth workers. Because I think youth workers are what's missing at the moment. Those social workers do huge work, and because they're the ones who actually walk with the young people. And that's where we've got to shift our focus. We're always thinking about what happens at the end. But if we're going to love on young people. Love isn't just let's wrap our arms around them and make them feel warm. Love is also speaking very directly to them saying that's not the behavior we expect. And when you've created conditions within your group of what the expected behavior is, of what you, the way we treat one another. For young men in particular, I'm really interested. I mentor a lot of young boys at the moment. And one of my interests is how do you treat women? How do you treat the girls? How do you treat your girlfriend, your wife, your partner? Because I think there's a gap here because so many of our young men grow up without a father figure or many of them grow up and they've seen violence in the home. They've seen dad raise their voice. I've got two girls, bro. And you know, I'm constantly asking myself, do I want to be a model to my daughters as to how a man should be treating them when they're married, the way I treat my wife? And so it's, you know, and like any couple, there's going to be disagreements in the house. But if I start raising my voice and yelling at my wife, my daughters will look at that and think, oh, okay, so that's acceptable behavior. It's not acceptable behavior. And so we need the role models and the social workers, the youth workers, the dads to really step into that gap and tell the girls and show the girls 
model to the girls, this is how a man should treat you. And that man shouldn't be in a gang either. But, you know, this, this is, we've got some real work to do. And I, I guess you, you, you're familiar with this stuff already, but I want people to understand that all of us have a key part to play. And it's frustrating. Often we look at from the outside in and we think, oh gosh, are we still working with those people? That talent will only grow and, and be blessed if we nurture it. And nurture takes time. It's not going to happen in three months. Often it happens over the lifespan, years of that young person's development. But man, it's worth it. Yeah, it's great stuff, mate. Um, you talk a lot about seeing the people. How, how do we do that? You know, especially if you're someone, you know, who's listening to this and you, you, you've not even been near a community where gangs are known or visible and all you hear about it is the media and the, you know, mm. um, you know those big scary images that you see. Um, how do you get past that? How do you look past, you know, that, that picture that's been shown to you all your life and see the person behind it? We've got to look at who our relationships are with. I do a bit of work in inclusive leadership. And one of the things I encourage people to think about is who's your circle? Who's your immediate circle? And if people just did a quick, you know, mentally now, who's your immediate circle? Who are the closest friends to you? You probably find that they're a lot like you. They're probably, for me, they're probably guys. They're probably brown. Uh, and they probably have a Christian background. So that's my immediate circle. And the challenge then is, well, who is beyond that immediate circle who's not going to be thinking like me, who doesn't have the same experiences as me, and what kind of a relationship do I have with them to learn about where they're at, about how they got to where they are today, their life experiences. And I think that's the first part of the conversation to be had, is write down who your immediate circle is, who your family is, and then ask yourself, well, who are the people I might not normally talk to at work? Who are the people who look like they've had different experiences than me? Who are the people at work that really hack me off because they rub me up the wrong way? How do I have coffee with that person? And how do I listen? So I think one of the one of the biggest issues we have today is we're not good at listening. And I'm a politician, bro. So, you know, we're good, this is going to go for the next five days, but the, we're not good at listening. And when we, when we slow down, anyone who's studied the neuroscience of the brain will know that if you can slow down and breathe deeply, you actually make better decisions. And so if we're slowing down and if we're taking our time to think about what FS was saying, you might see something or hear something I've just said and think, oh, I disagree. And, you, and, and naturally our inclination is to just block it out. Maybe one idea is to write down the comment that you're really struggling with, that I've said or someone else has said, and just put it aside and allow yourself to reflect on that comment, to reflect on that experience. Because if it's challenged you, what it's probably doing is saying to you, oh, do I understand that very well? Anyone who's involved in the church, you ask, you ask church people, how many of you have friends who, are, who belong to the LGBT community? Hey, how many of us invite them into the church? Dad used to get in trouble all the time with the Pentecostal movement because dad allowed Fafine, a transgender, to be in our worship team. And I tell you, and I'm Samoan, bro, the Samoan families weren't having a bar of it. They, they were very quick to tell my dad, you're going to be stood down, mate, because you don't have Fafine leading in the worship team. But dad was trying to encourage all of us to think about my expression of worship is going to be different to someone else's. How do we ensure that everyone is at least given the opportunity 
to express themselves. And I think when we've started to listen and to listen attentively without judgment, that's the start of a really cool uh, conversation. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's beautiful, mate. And um, like we say here at Williams of Science, listen is to love, right? And I think you've just yeah. really encapsulated that perfectly for us, bro. Um, I mean, like what I'm hearing a lot is it's a, it's about community. It's about connection. It's about loving one another. It's about, you know, letting that love for one another go past just how we interact with each other, but also into policy and how we actually shape the communities and the systems that we, we live in. Right. Have you, have you seen, I guess, this approach work in your community? Uh, I know sort of out South there's been like dips and dives around uh, and a lot of journeying around this. Um, have you seen any success? Yeah, I think going back to the time we did the research, the government really invested a lot of money and, and or, or a bit of thought. And I think all up, they spent maybe $3 million over, uh, per year over something like four or five years in, in just in investing in youth workers. And we saw a rapid decline in the reporting of violent crime amongst young people in South Auckland and a huge incline of people being present in youth groups. And that was over a five, six year period. The minute the money went, which isn't a lot, $3 million, let's think about it, it's not a lot of money, especially when it costs us $100,000 per prisoner every year. Mm -hmm. So if we just look at what we're getting for a few couple of million dollars and saving people from ending up in the prison system anyway, then we're doing a really good thing. But that worked. And then we took the money away, we took away that resource and we just thought, oh cool, the community can handle it. Poor communities haven't got any money to handle that kind of stuff and as a result of that we've seen an increase again in in gang activity and what it shows is is that there are policies that can work that aren't going to cost us heaps and heaps of money and often governments are trying to work out well how much is this going to cost us how much what am I going to look like and I think your ordinary person who's listening to this podcast now is going to look and I think cheapest you got that for three million dollars that was the kind of return on investment look at the positive social outcomes that came from that and it saves us millions of dollars down the road if we keep people out of prison and actually if we're helping them to do well at school and become really positive contributors to the economy and society so the money all works out but it's the upfront investment that has to happen first and that's what I think government should be thinking about investing in your police numbers is end of the road end bottom of the cliff investment investing in youth workers and social workers community programs that are going to bring people together ensuring that our children have got something to eat at school, lunch programs, breakfast programs, that upfront investment, whilst it might seem a lot at the beginning, will save us huge money at the end. So yeah, those things do work. And I think part of the problem is we've relied too heavily on philanthropic agencies or organisations to fill that gap. I think that's a role the state should be playing because the state is all about creating harmony and hope within a society. And for $3 million in South Auckland, that's what just close to a million people, eh? That's, that's heaps that's of nuts. people, eh? So it works, eh? The money works. So, so why, like, in your view, because um, that's crazy, and that's, that's a awesome, mm. like, you can, you can see the result, right, in that time. Um, and this is a conversation we've been having on, on the podcast a while around justice and, and reform and, and what works and what doesn't. And there's been, you know, you're not the only one who's saying this around prevention being, you know, like, support people at the beginning, and you don't have to invest in much in prison systems and police later on. Why are we still having this conversation? You know, it seems cut and dry when you actually get to the to the bare bones of what actually works for people. 
why is it that every election cycle we go back to the you know the tired and worn tough on crime rhetoric when we could be investing in proactive and positive solutions yeah i think there's probably about 50 parts to to answer that question and I think well, one of the fickle things, one, th- one thing that I've known now that I'm involved in local government politics is three-year cycles are fickle. I don't know why elections are every three years. I think we should follow the Samoan model, which is elections every five years, even though people might argue that the politicians in Samoa are a little bit you know, ruthless and a little bit beyond help, but at least it gives them time to really thrust out some good policy and make it work. So I think there's one is- that's one issue. And then you've got a media like we talked about earlier they like to do a lot of sensationalizing of the issues and if you've got a sensationalist media and you've got people who turn on the news at six o'clock and that is as far as the knowledge book is concerned you know if people don't have the time to go to the library and read a piece of research like the research that we wrote 11 years ago about gangs then all you've got available to you that's feeding your knowledge base is the news and if it's just sensationalist news then that's what you're constantly feeding yourself. Anyone who reads the Bible will know you can't survive on just picking up your word for today and surviving on that verse and running out the door and feeling like I'm going to be a great Christian for the day. You need to really get into the meat of it. And that's where I think society has has been let down is that we're not foundational in what we're on in the information that we're sharing. Unfortunately, along came, you know, along comes Facebook and Instagram, and now everyone who has an opinion it's now the truth for everybody so it's really hard to discern what's really good information and what's just another opinion piece I think what we've got to do is which is something we talk about a lot in in, uh, neuroscience is how do we slow down how do we pause for a moment and consider what someone else might be going through consider how they got to that position consider why they are there at that time and We do it well for people who are a lot like us, but we don't do it so well for people who are different to us. And, you know, that's why we're more patient with our families and our churches, because we know them. The key is the relationship. How do we establish relationships with people who are not the same as us, who aren't in our circle, and get an understanding of their world and understand that the people that they're connecting with might be really different to us. So I think there's some work to be done, but the media haven't helped. It's starting to change slightly, but we've got to do a little bit better in how we speak. And I think the churches have to do better too. Look, the truth of the matter is, wealthier churches tend to be connected to rightly leaning political parties. And then you've got South Auckland churches who just kind of nod their head politely, but we all know they're kind of left-leaning Labour supporters. We've got to get past the left-right, and I think it's time to look at the up-down, the heart-to-heart connection, and I couldn't care less about the politics anymore, because what we've certainly been showing is that politics has failed us. And I think we need a politics of compassion and a politics of faith that's actually going to provide a new journey. And I think the church has a pivotal part to play in that. And I'm not talking about let's all get behind destiny and support them in their vision New Zealand stuff, because I think that's one aspect of it. But unfortunately, I think those churches have have, um, sucked up too much media oxygen what we need is kind of honest people who are going to say, let's have a let's have a mature conversation now. Our society is ready for it. And let's lead that way rather than this is how you live. And if you're a sinner, stay out of my way. If you're not a Labour voter, I'm not interested in you either. We love the labels. Hey, labels are really helpful for the brain. They're not helpful for social cohesion. I love that politics of compassion. 
That was, that was powerful, mate. I'm going to chew on that for a bit. Um, I guess as we're starting to, to starting to wrap up now, like what's, what's like one thing, you know, maybe if someone came into this conversation and they're just thinking, oh, you know, those people that are in gangs, they're just the terrible people. We need to, you know, lock them up and throw away the key sort of thing. Something we're hearing a lot through our media, as you're saying. I mean, what's one thing you'd like to leave with them around, you know, I guess how they can be part of the solution or, you know, even as they're thinking about how they vote and where their values lie, you know, what would you like them to leave with as we go? I'd love them to know that at our basics, we're people with hearts and feelings. And I think if I, if I use maybe a try and use a New Testament example, I think Jesus came across the biggest gang of his time was the, were the Pharisees. They were the, the most established gang. If you look at some of the research, in our research, it's funny because everyone was looking at the gangs like they're the negative people. And the gangs were telling us, well, actually, the biggest gang in New Zealand is the New Zealand police force. And just that threw me, bro. I was thinking, oh, wow, I've never seen the police in that light. And then they said, well, actually, the other big gang in the world is churches. So all of a sudden, it made me understand that the gangs saw the world a little bit differently. And as I understood how they saw the world, it gave me a bit more insight into how I might interact with them. But I think at our basic humanity, we've got to understand that people have feelings, that people are driven by certain things, that people have aspirations. You don't bring people into the world so you can watch them fail and die. You bring people into the world and we've all got kids or grandchildren or partners and we want the absolute best for them. And if we could just go to that place in our hearts and our minds and say, how do we just get the best for that child? That child who doesn't look like me, who comes from another part of town that I'm not experienced with, but I, well, how is it that, so? how do I make it such that that child gets the same opportunities as the child that I know? And when we start entering the conversation from that perspective, it'll start to shift us. It'll start to help us to lift our eyes just a little bit. And the gangs aren't bad. Actually, if you, anyone who's studied uh, the youth development strategy out here, or you'll be familiar with it, if you look at gang structures, they have got their youth development strategy sorted. Uh, they could run workshops on how to make the youth development strategy out here or work in your organization because the way the gangs are structured, you would take everything out of the youth development strategy and say it works perfectly well in the gang structure. Our challenge, though, is what's the output of that group? And if we're looking for way more positive outputs that help all of us to be a cohesive society, then that's the one area of the gangs that I would challenge, which is you've got great structures, but your outputs are such that it's going to lead to people getting hurt. So how do we reintegrate you back into a society that we're going to change from this side as a politician, as a person who goes to church, help them to adjust to understand you better? How do you adjust to understand us better as the society? And how do we merge and marry all of those ideas and I think we'll, we'll do well I think that's the start it's going to take some time and some patience but if we've got the right people leading it because it's a leadership issue too and if we've got leaders who are, who show the humility to listen then we're I think we're in a good space it's going to take some time though Hey, that's, that's, that's awesome, man. You've, you've left us a lot to think about, a lot of uh, pearls there for us to just uh, chew on. But um, hey, thank you so much for your time today, man. Awesome, bro. Thank you. So I really enjoyed that. Um, 
yeah Fuse was a really cool guy and he had so much awesome stuff to say what do you think I think it's good as I'm someone who's very much you know white middle class not very sort of connected to gangs at all um so it's really good to uh, hear someone who's obviously like had some real heart-to-heart like real good conversations with people that are involved um so like releasing the people as as people so it was really good to to hear from him and hear his perspective what was the biggest takeaway for you i think i found what i was really struck with is something that tends to keep coming up over and over again with all sorts of different subjects and conversations. And it's that a lot of times we look at something that we see as a problem, like like gangs, and we see what we can do um, that seems directly related to the problem. You know, punish people who are doing things that are illegal or um, whatever. But I think from the conversation that um, that the two of you had, I can see that with many things, it's there's there's deeper issues and there's more going on, and it's actually looking at some of the failures of our society, people who are lonely or who don't have good stability in families or who uh, are in poverty, and it's actually those sort of bigger issues that are causing um, people to turn to gangs for those for those things to meet those needs and and with some some negative outcomes attached to that as well but it's it's those deeper needs that people have that are causing them to to look to meet those needs so it's like the solution is that we really need to be looking after each other as a community and that seems to be something that would solve so many problems in society that is if we were really looking after our neighbors the young people that we knew if we were providing positive environments where some of those needs can be met when um when maybe the family isn't able to provide it for various reasons that actually it would solve a lot of a lot of these issues we have in society that's what really struck me the most i think the thing i keep coming back to or get frustrated with is that i mean we know what works and you know we know what doesn't work um yet whenever we come back to election time um our politicians keep trying to feed us the same old tired rhetoric around getting tough on crime and upping police numbers and you know targeting harassing gangs i mean as you heard there with afisa um that doesn't work it hasn't worked in his community it's not working in our community it just doesn't work you know the question then is why do our politicians keep feeding this to us why does it keep coming up on the bottom line in the agenda um, when we get to an election cycle and the only real conclusion I can come to is that you know in the community we want that you know like we hear those election promises and we think that that's the way and I think it's just a reminder that actually if we if we want a better I guess form of justice system if we want communities where we look after each other and where we actually get to the root cause of people's pain and and start to support one another then we need to make that known to our politicians and and part of how we do that is is also yes by how we vote but it's also between elections being involved in our democratic process and that when our politicians are putting pieces of legislation into parliament, when they're, you know, forming our justice system, that we actually, you know, use the levers of government that we have, you know, our select committee process, you know, being able to interact with our MPs and let them know, actually, this isn't the justice system we want. This isn't the sort of Aotearoa New Zealand we want. We want to actually deal with what works, and what works is starting with people 
and addressing the underlying hurts and pains and I guess brokenness that exists in our community first. I guess it seems like it's tempting to go with those easy solutions. It's easy, just it seems easy, just to to throw someone in prison or to, um, yeah, to do that kind of thing instead of actually doing some hard yards to bring healing. But I guess as a society, sometimes we don't like to think deeply or long term about these things. We just ah, uh, that's a you know, it's a problem. Let's get it get it solved quickly but actually having the patience for the real solution something that's long-term lasting and that's gonna make a a real difference in society is something we need to be I guess a bit more up for and speak that out and I guess hey you know come up to election time another good opportunity to um, let your elected officials know sort of what values you have and and what sort of Aotearoa you would like to see um, come about over the next few years. But anyway, uh, we can hear baby Martin is ready to eat, so I think we better go, Summer. Yep, just short and sweet, that's what it is. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> hey, so thank you so much um, once again for joining us. I mean, I'm really enjoying these chats. Um, and yeah, we'll see you next week. Kakite. Just Lambs is Silent, the podcast. Rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you are listening, and join the conversation by following us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. The music from this podcast is from the album Dissonance by Jess Jackson and Leon Shelley. Listen to more from these artists on Spotify.